Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. All right, kids, here we go. Next seminar up December 9th through the 11th with a few spots left after that, February 17th to the 19th, then April 14th through the 16th. For training camps on the list, Self-Sufficient Lifter Camp in Wichita Falls on November 19th, covering the squat, the press, and the deadlift. Then we have our two-day lift shoot fight camp. That's December 17th to the 18th in Wichita Falls, covering all of the lifts, combatives, and firearms training. We do have a couple spots left for our deadlift and power clean camp in Seoul, South Korea. That will be December 4th. Then for squat and deadlift camps with spots on the list, November 19th in Moody's, Connecticut at Anino Strength and Conditioning. December 11th in Chicago at Starting Strength Chicago. And we just added Long Island to the mix January 21st, all of those squat and deadlift camps. And lastly, we still have spots available for our first camp ever, coached entirely in Spanish, covering the squat and the deadlift. That'll be January 21st in San Antonio at Starting Strength San Antonio. If you haven't heard, the greatest lifting boot ever created is now available for pre-order. That's the Starting Strength Lifting Boot. This is our collaborative effort with Justin Boots, so you know it's of the highest quality. If you'd like to get on that pre-order list, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com forward slash boot. Speaking of Starting Strength Gyms, we do have a lot going on, a lot more gyms on the list to come, and some set to open. Tampa will be next on the list to open up, starting their pre-sale event here shortly in the next month. And just to give you a rundown on who else is coming on board, we have Vancouver, Washington, Colorado Springs, Fort Worth, Indianapolis, Nashville, Atlanta, and of course, Miami. For more information on any of those locations, head over to StarringStrengthGyms.com. And for more information on any of the events that I've talked about, head over to StarringStrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. We are uh, fortunate once again to have our friend Malcolm Kendrick from uh, the UK, the University of Kentucky. Uh, no, that's the United Kingdom, I believe. Uh, it, 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 you know, Malcolm, could you move to Kentucky? It'd be a hell of a lot easier to get with you. You know, well, with all the airplanes. I'll, I'll give it a try. Give but, it some uh, thought, at least. Give it some thought. Uh, we are going to talk today with Malcolm about uh, about a topic I've been interested in for quite some time. And uh, I was first exposed to this idea that uh, cholesterol, that's serum cholesterol, dietary cholesterol, has nothing whatsoever to do with heart disease. A very long time ago, 33 years ago, 32 years ago, a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Chris Mudd wrote this book. This is Cholesterol in Your Health, The Great American Ripoff. And I've had this thing laying around the office for a very long time. 
And I first read this a long time ago, and uh, it introduced me to the idea that uh, what Ansel Keys had told us in his little Seven Nations study didn't make any fucking sense. And it didn't make any sense when it was published in the 70s. It makes no sense today. It's never made any sense, and yet it is the dogma, and it needs to be uh, refuted. And we are going to do that today. So those of you that have the interest, this is an old book. But this guy, Chris Mudd, was, uh, he was an animal science guy from A&M, and he was, uh, he was in the livestock feeding industry. And uh, he had it down. He had it down a long, long time ago. And uh, I'd have to say he was a, a pioneer in this. And those of you that are interested, look up this book. It's called Cholesterol in Your Health by Chris Mudd. And there are copies available used. You can find them online. But first, I want to talk, um, I, I want to read you a quote that, uh, that Malcolm has uh, started off his latest book with. And this was published last year. This is called The Clot Thickens. And Malcolm's take on all of this stuff is, is simply the best in the industry. And he's... He's enjoyable to read. The arguments are clear. They're irrefutable. He's done his homework. And you can, you can read what he says, and, uh, and you don't have to believe it. He'll show you. He'll prove it to you. This is an interesting quote from Richard Feynman that I thought couldn't possibly be more relevant in 2022 because of what has happened to civilized society over the past two and a half years. And Richard Feynman says, it does not matter who you are or how smart you are or what title you have or how many of you there are and certainly not how many papers your side has published. If your prediction is wrong, then your hypothesis is wrong, period. Now, how many things does this apply to? <laughs> Malcolm, I can think of a couple. <laughs> this is a wonderful quote. This is Malcolm's latest book, I think. You haven't got another one out since then, have you? No, no, unless, uh, unless I wrote one that I'm, I'm unaware of. <laughs> I don't think uh, you probably have. You'd probably have been reminded of the time spent had you done so. Here are these three books that uh, of Malcolm's that I've recently read, and they're all terribly informative. Uh, the first one published back in '07 was this called "The Great Cholesterol Con," and it's a it's a a nice summary of the of the state of the argument at the time. This book, Doctoring Data, is a more broadly topicked book. It's about science in general. And uh, 
the the problems with, for example, peer review and all of the things that you know, non reproducibility of of uh, papers and you know all of the things that that uh, question our ability to worship these people. And then the clot thickens is a, an excellent summary of the current state of thinking about the cholesterol hypothesis. So uh, I'm just going to leave these here, and I want you guys to order these books and read them and thereby grow wiser. Uh, Malcolm, uh, again, I really appreciate your time. It's uh, You already worked a whole day, and here you are talking to talking to us and uh, I appreciate it every time you you sit down with us and talk so give me a little summary real quick of what causes heart disease because this is a this is a terribly important topic heart disease kills more people than any other thing on the surface of the earth it kills more people earlier than anything else it is a uh, it's been a problem for thousands of years although not near as big a problem as it is now and there's very good reason for that so i'm just going to shut up and i want you to tell us if i can it's kind of an outrageous promise uh and i want you to tell us give us a summary of of the, the situation here well, thanks very much. I mean, I've talked about this a lot, uh, and there's the simple answer and the complicated answers. I think um, when I look at it simply, essentially, um, heart disease is um, a three-stage process, if you like. It's a, a continuous thing. So the first thing that happens is all your blood vessels are lined with um, cells called endothelial cells, a bit like tiles on the wall although obviously they're about 5 million times more complicated and do 5 million times more things than a tile on your wall. Uh, and then facing the inside of the of all blood vessels is a, is a kind of grass lawn, which isn't really glass. It's called glycocalyx. So it's a kind of wavy, non-stick substance that protects the endothelial cells. And so if you're the first stage of causing um, damage to your arteries, is, which is damage your arteries called atherosclerosis is what we call heart disease if you like so the terminology gets a bit confusing for a lot of people uh, the first stage the first thing that happens is something some things have to damage this lining so the glycocalyx can be damaged the underlying endothelial cell can be damaged or stripped away from the artery wall um less commonly in fact hardly ever vein walls but mainly artery walls at which point the body doesn't like having an exposed artery wall. It, it releases a substance that says, damage, please clot here to prevent serious blood loss. So a blood clot forms over that area. Now, obviously, if that blood clot just gets getting bigger and bigger, then you have entirely, your entire cardiovascular system would be full of a blood clot, and, and, you, would, and you would at which point be dead which although we're obviously not talking about COVID, it's fascinating that, that uh, one of the things that COVID does, it gets into endothelial cells, it damages them, it causes widespread blood clotting, and therefore 
you can get blood clotting throughout the body, followed by strokes, heart attacks, and death. So, you know, it's in, when, when in fact, when COVID turned up, I just happened to be writing a chapter about damage to artery walls. And here we had, here we had an agent that damaged artery walls, and everybody was amazed that this respiratory virus was causing people to die from heart attacks, as if this was something that was completely inexplicable to science. <laughs> Whereas, if you look, if you knew what you were talking about, um, uh, and it was clear and obvious because other viruses also do this. So anyway, moving away from that because that's an acute situation, if you like, with COVID. Although it will become and appears to be becoming a chronic problem yeah. with heart disease rates going up. So you damage the artery wall and a clot forms in that area, a small clot. I mean, might be quite, you probably couldn't even, most of them you probably couldn't even see with the naked eye. But of course, once you have a blood clot stuck it, inside. That's a patch, essentially. A patch, essentially, is a right. covering up patch, which then, right. then the body, once you've got this covering up patch, of course, um, you know, if you scratch your skin, then you get bleeding and then you get a scab and the scab falls off. But obviously, if the same process happened inside your arteries, you'd get a scab. If the scab then just fell off, it would travel down the artery to a narrowed bit and then would get stuck and block that artery. Right. So you can't have that happening. So instead of which, the body recognizes this patch. It covers it over with a new layer of endothelial cells and obviously glycogelics on top of that and draws it into the artery wall. So the blood clot is now sitting within the artery wall, a micro clot, or it might be bigger than a micro clot. Now, that's a normal process that's probably happening in your arteries. I hate to say this, don't worry about it. Right now, as you sit here, although it's more likely to happen if you smoke or you have a high blood sugar level or you're under huge stress or you're whatever. So what, what you have here is a normal process of damage and repair. Damage and repair, damage and repair. The problem happens is if the damage starts to outstrip the repair. So you get a blood clot at a point, it gets covered over, and then next day, next week, whatever, further damage occurs at that point because that's a point of vulnerability. So you then have repeated episodes that tend to occur at the same points which is why heart disease or atherosclerosis or plaques tend to develop areas where there's the maximum sort of what they call biomechanical stress on an artery. So where, where arteries branch and become smaller arteries, right. at those branch points, that's very often where you'll see atherosclerosis. Where the, essentially where the surface area has, it shows an increase with respect to the volume of blood. Yeah, well, I think it's I think of it somewhat as being like a, a, a place where white, white water kind of rushing down splits at that point and right. it becomes turbulent and ah. the, the pressures right. at that. Non-laminar flow, so to speak. It's where, the, well, laminar flow, anyway, there's, there's all sorts of discussion about this. But essentially, which is why um, essentially uh, you don't get atherosclerotic plaques in veins because in veins the blood pressure is six over zero whereas in the arteries it's 130 over 70 or whatever so in one sense you're looking in veins you're looking at a slow moving relatively slow moving non-turbulent low stress environment mm -hmm. whereas in the arteries and so it's why the the plaques tend to develop in the higher stress arteries 
So your coronary arteries in your heart, for example, they're supplying the heart, but the pressure of the heart pumping actually slams the arteries shut when it contracts. And, and blood only flows through your coronary arteries when your blood, when your arteries, when your heart relaxes. So as someone described it as your coronary arteries, it's like someone stomping on a garden hose 60 times a minute. So clearly these arteries are under the greatest stresses mm-hmm. and being slammed shut and open and bashed around regularly. So this is where commonest place for these plaques to form. The second commonest place for these plaques to form is the arteries in your neck, the carotid arteries, because the blood comes out of your heart, goes up through your aorta, splits, goes up into your both sides of your neck. This is where the blood pressure is at its highest, and it's going straight into these arteries going up your neck, which is why quite often you get buildup of these of these plaque areas in your neck, and when one of these plaques become breaks off. It can go into your brain and give you a stroke. That's the commonest cause of stroke. So it's essentially the same process. It's just a slightly different end result. So basically, you're looking at damage to the artery, blood clot forms, patch forms, repair occurs, artery drawn, uh, blood clot drawn into the artery wall. And if that keeps happening at the same point, this plaque, this clot, if you like, clot turning into plaque becomes bigger and bigger. The artery itself narrows and narrows because obviously you're getting this plaque forming at this point, and eventually it can block completely with the final kind of blood clot. So the process from start to finish is the same process. It's blood clot, narrowing of artery, repair, on you go. But eventually, if your artery is narrowed, say 70, 80, 90%, then clearly once the next blood clot forms, it becomes likely it can become a complete obstruction to blood flow and so it can cause a heart attack. Or it can break off from the plaque in your neck, travel up into your brain, and block an artery in your brain and give you a stroke. So those are the commonest end results. So that's the, does that sort of work as a process? Does that seem clear? Yes, yes. it's uh, uh, and, and the things that prevent this from happening are what? Well, essentially, um, you want to keep your arteries... <clears throat> your endothelium and your glycocalyx as healthy as it can be. Um, and and you, want to, you want to prevent yourself doing things that will damage your glycocalyx and your endothelial cells. So there's, there's sort of an obvious and easy uh, um, to explain damaging thing is smoking. Yes. Uh, they've done experiments with volunteers who were asked to smoke one cigarette and they'd not been previous smokers. They smoked one cigarette and you could measure there's a thing called microparticles, which is what's released when an endothelial cell dies. You could measure an increase in microparticles in the bloodstream within five minutes of smoking a cigarette because the cigarette smoke gets into your lungs, yes, but because it's such a small particle size called a nanoparticle, it gets through your lungs and into your blood vessels where it damages the, the endothelial cells. And you can see that happening in real time virtually. So you'd say, well, how on earth doesn't everyone just drop dead immediately from smoking a cigarette? Well, at the same time, the the bone marrow releases new early stage endothelial cells. They float around, find the areas of damage and cover them over. So the, the damage is is being sought out almost immediately. 
So right. your body's stimulated to do the repair at the same time. Now, clearly, at a certain point, if you smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke, your body's not going to be able to overcome the rate of damage that you're causing by smoking. So the same thing would happen with, say, inhaling vehicle fumes. I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, and how on earth can diesel particle fumes cause heart disease? That's impossible. I said, well, it's the same thing with smoking. You inhale nanoparticles. The nanoparticles get into your bloodstream, damage the blood vessels, and there you are. You've got more damage occurring at such a fast rate. Blood clots build up. You get clots forming. And at the same time, these nanoparticles cause the blood to become more likely to clot. So they be, the, the term being hypercoagulable. So you can see, you know, there's a couple of things where the, 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 the link is very clear. And you can look back and I was, I was always interested to say, you know, in, in the past was, was um, you know, we, we used to have lead in, in uh, you call it gasoline in America, we call it petrol. But lead and gas stop the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the engines from backfiring. Well, it was. And, it uh, acted as a lubricant for the valves. Was it that's, a lubricant for the valves? Yeah, that's, anyway, that's why it was in there because lead's kind of slick, and right. uh, there wasn't any thought given back in 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 that period of time um, to the, the environmental effects of of lead. Now, lead yeah. is uh, there are some aviation fuels that still have it, but it, that. The amount of it is minuscule compared to what it used to be. But uh, lead served a very important function at the yes. time. And uh, we just didn't have any idea <laughs> what it was doing otherwise. Yeah. Well, it, it um, well, again, with lead, I think the, you can see, again, you can measure it, that you inhale lead in the atmosphere mm-hmm. from petrol fumes. 90% of it goes into the blood vessels and then actually at that point an awful lot of it absorbs is absorbed into the bone and um, it's very slowly released over many many years so the effects of lead excess lead consumption or ingestion or inhalation can last for decades mm-hmm. it gets out of the out of the, the bone into the bloodstream and again lead is a very potent damaging substance to the glycocalyx and the endothelial cells. This has been found, and, and I've read papers estimating that lead uh, inhalation um, or excess lead or whatever term you want to use for it uh, was responsible for, I think, 250,000 deaths from cardiovascular disease per year at yeah. one stage. Right. Per year. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you can argue these figures, but again, you'd say, well, you have lead and you have smoking and you have diesel fumes, which don't seem necessarily related substances, but they all cause heart disease in exactly the same way. And that's sort of when you begin to say, well, what else can damage your endothelial cells and your glycocalyx? Well, one of the probably the, the biggest issue from a population perspective is is having a high blood sugar level having type 2 diabetes because the glycocalyx itself is made from protein and sugars, various proteins and sugars mm-hmm. linked together. Now, if you have a high sugar level, this disrupts the glycocalyx and thins it considerably. You can actually see this happening. There are ways of measuring the glycocalyx. You can stick a, a microscope 
device underneath your tongue where the blood vessels are very visible and you can see capillaries with these with these um with these microscopes and if you get people and give them a high sugar meal you can see the glycocalyx thinning in front of your very eyes <laughs> and uh clearly you know people say well how does diabetes cause heart disease you know it doesn't raise your cholesterol blah 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 it, essentially what it does is it damages the glycocalyx it exposes the endothelium to damage and so you have exactly the same problems as you have with smoking with lead and the other interesting thing about diabetes is particularly that the very small blood vessels the capillaries and the arterioles also have glycocalyx but this is damaged by high blood sugar level but it causes damage to these capillaries now you can't get an atherosclerotic plaque in a capillary because that would be like a, a snake swallowing an elephant. It just wouldn't fit. There's nowhere for a plaque right. to fit in a capillary. What happens instead is the cells die, and, and then the capillaries burst and become blocked and just die off. And because of this, um, because these are the small blood vessels that supply the neurons in, say, your eye, you can get eye damage and blindness. And because the capillaries are hugely important in the kidneys and the nephrons, for the whole system working, that you can destroy the kidneys as well right. because the nephrons start to die off. So you end up with kidney failure. You so end the, up with the more microscopic the structure, the more vulnerable it is to these types of damage. And that's, yeah, that's easy. So, I mean, well, yes, smoking will tend to can cause what they call small vessel disease, diabetes. Some some diseases will not affect the smaller blood vessels because they're mainly causing damage to the endothelial cells rather directly rather than going for the glycocalyx. But of course, these are subtle distinctions, if you like. Yes, if you start destroying the glycocalyx and damaging endothelial cells, you're going to hell will break loose. Mm. All hell will break loose throughout your entire cardiovascular and neurological and kidneys and everything, really. Right. The whole system starts to, to sort of break down. So how does cholesterol fit into this puzzle? Uh, well, we have been taught that cholesterol is a deadly poison. It, yeah. is, the, it is the equivalent of, um, of rat poison. Yeah. You know, an egg is essentially a, a poisonous object. Um, <laughs> yeah. we've, uh, this, this whole thing started a very long time ago. Um, and I'd, I'd like to talk about the history of that after we discuss the uh, supposed mechanism by which um, cholesterol functions as this deadly poison in our bodies. And, uh, uh, you know, there's not – it would be difficult to point to something more badly understood by the general public than cholesterol. And <laughs> well, that is the fault of the people who uh, should be explaining it to us, but who have not. And uh, and then we'll talk about statins <laughs> at the end of this. So tell us about cholesterol. What the hell is going on here? Well, uh, you've got to go back a long way to, to, to the foundations of the cholesterol hypothesis. But essentially, it's very simple in that 
when people looked at atherosclerotic plaques, they found cholesterol or quite a high concentration of cholesterol in them. Um, and therefore, they said, well, where can this cholesterol have come from? And they thought, well, the only place it could have come from is the bloodstream. Ergo, if your cholesterol level is high, it will be absorbed into your arteries, causing plaques to build up. That's the the simple solution is your, um, right. somebody I like to quote, H.L. Mencken, for every complicated solution, uh, for every complicated problem, there's a solution that's simple, easily understandable, and wrong. And absolutely and, incorrect, yes. Yes, um, and this is where we, we end up. So, if you like, if this was the finding, and, and they decided this was the cause, and then they reversed engineered everything to fit this Yes. Isn't that interesting? They decided on the answer. Yes. And then they tailored the questions. Of course. And that's exactly what happened a long time ago. Yes. And uh, our friend Ansel Keys was was, uh, instrumental in this, wasn't he? Well, Ansel Keys was a very charismatic guy, obviously and had a lot of energy and managed to convince a lot of people. I mean, the essential part was after the Second World War, um, America suddenly appeared to have been overwhelmed by people dying from heart disease, especially middle-aged men. And this apparently hadn't happened before. Well, whether it did or whether it didn't, it's very difficult. You can get into endless arguments about that. But it was a bit like today with, well, I don't know when, when HIV came along or, or when COVID came along now, there was a kind of panic. My God, all these people are dying. And then, of course, Eisenhower um, had a heart attack, which kind of brought it to more people's attention. And everyone was kind of rushing about going, well, what causes it? What causes it? And no one had a real answer. Uh, except one guy um, decided he knew what the answer was, which was that if you ate cholesterol, this raised your blood cholesterol and this causes heart disease. And that man was Ansel Keys. And he, he actually then did experiments and feeding people with high doses, high, high amounts of cholesterol, which basically means eating eggs, as you know. Right. And what he found was that he couldn't alter the cholesterol level um, by one iota by feeding people cholesterol. <laughs> so instead of saying, well, that, that hypothesis is clearly a complete crock, he just said, well, when I said cholesterol, I didn't mean cholesterol, I meant saturated fat. Now, of course, <laughs> the problem here is that cholesterol is a chemical and the when we say blood cholesterol, we don't mean cholesterol at all. It's a completely different thing. So already you've started to, you know, you're immediately running into problems with comprehension. Cholesterol is not free in the blood. It doesn't float around in the bloodstream. You do not have a cholesterol level. You can't have a cholesterol level. It's impossible. So immediately you have this problem of, okay, so what have you got? Well, what you've got is, as you know, Cholesterol is carried around in a thing called a lipoprotein, a lipid protein sphere, which is actually ironically about the same size as a, as a, as a COVID virus. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and within these lipoproteins is saturated fat and cholesterol. They come out of the liver not as low-density lipoprotein, as, as a thing called very low-density lipoprotein. They travel around the body losing fat, and gradually we have a higher concentration of cholesterol and they're converted into a smaller molecule called a low-density lipoprotein molecule. That's the one everyone is talking about, really, 
when they talk about cholesterol. So it's not cholesterol. It's a thing that carries cholesterol about inside it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it also carries all sorts of other things about inside it as well. And 99.9% of LDL molecules travel back to the liver where they're reabsorbed. And then bits of it are then used to create more of these VLDL molecules. So there is actually no way that, uh, uh, you know, the other thing obviously to say to people is that unless you're at about 15 eggs a day, your liver will synthesize more cholesterol than you will ever get in your diet. Well, you know, and, and isn't it interesting that one of the ways that burn patients were treated uh, was with uh, massive consumption of eggs because of the the protein synthesis that was necessary to to repair burn damage and the the best way to to encourage that process was to provide uh, high quality protein in the form of eggs yes and uh you know, the cholesterol wasn't mentioned no. Well, I mean, you know, and I know eggs are superfood, you know, and I, as I also say, why is fabulous so little things, man? Oh, yeah. Why is there so much cholesterol in an egg yolk? Because it, it takes a hell of a lot of cholesterol to build a healthy chicken. Right. <laughs> yes. Cholesterol is not like a drain cleaner. It is not a deadly poison. Cholesterol is a wonderful little molecule and... Mr. Keys and all of the people that decided that they would jump on that on that train have uh, have poisoned cholesterol in the popular in the mind of popular culture, and uh, yes. and it's just uh, it, it's just simply amazing to me that we could be so thoroughly distracted. Uh, by this easily refuted idea and that uh, the conventional medical wisdom is that cholesterol needs to be lowered. Yep. And by God, doesn't matter what the cost. We have to lower cholesterol. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the nature of this this bizarre permutation of the actual biology, biological understanding of, of cholesterol's function and everything. It's just, it's, it's amazing how this has happened over, over the past 50 years. It really is. It is, um, I, 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 I can explain at least in some terms of, yes, this was an idea. It is not completely stupid. Because, yes, cholesterol is found in plaques and where would it come from and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, as a, as a simplistic answer, it, it's not bad, you know. And since no one else had any answers, they kind of grabbed at it. And then why, how it's managed to, you know, well, I would say if you go to the 1980s, early 1980s, there were quite a lot of people getting a bit sort of, is cholesterol really this thing we should be worrying about? There was... There was more and more people. I mean, I'll, I'll throw a book at you from uh, before your one, which is um, a guy called, um, uh, oh, I've just forgotten his moment name now. It'll come to me in a minute. It was a guy that worked on the Framingham study originally, George Mann. 
who was completely uh i mean he he set up the the framingham study originally but then fell out with the various mm -hmm. people saying all these ideas about diet are just nonsense but he was the man that went to the maasai villages in kenya and uh, said okay well these guys eat nothing but animal f fat well they they drink milk and they and, and they drink blood and they eat cows and they don't touch vegetables because they think they will stop them from being proper manly men if you like right. so they ate this stuff and of course they ended up looking oops like that mm -hmm. and like a movie their, star. <laughs> their their cholesterol levels were really pretty low and well and the the, you know look at the polar eskimos di uh, diet that that's a, another interesting thing there, we've got pretty good historical references on on the diet of polar eskimos there were no vegetables available and these people no. do not have did not have heart disease that lifestyle is no. pretty much extinct but well, the, the, the sami villagers of, of scandinavia right which we, we possibly call Eskimo. They're not really Eskimos. Same kind the of reindeer, Same kind the of reindeer, The reindeer herderers. Right. No plants available. No. No. So. And they had the reindeer, basically. Right. Um, and yet they had the low... I mean, they smoked like chimneys. <laughs> they actually had quite high cholesterol levels. <laughs> and they had almost zero heart disease. Yeah, I mean, you can find population after population. It is, um, it, as you say, how on earth... It, Normally, a hypothesis dies when you find one of Karl Popper's black swans. You know, you're, okay, right. so you know, uh, I believe high cholesterol causes heart disease. Well, here's a population with high cholesterol, and they don't have heart disease. I mean, I looked at the Japanese, mm. and in the 19, early 1960s, the Japanese average cholesterol level was. Sorry, I'm going to try and convert because I use millimoles per liter. Uh, 3.9, which is about. Uh, 150 milligrams per deciliter. That's low. Low. Very, very low. And they had almost no heart disease, but they had, very, they had very little meat. Now, at one stage, everyone, and this was Ansel Keys used them as an example. Mm -hmm. they, they were the poster boys for the low fat, low cholesterol diet with low cholesterol and no heart disease, right? But, but an interesting thing happened to the Japanese over the next 40 or 50 years is they started eating a lot more animal produce because they got richer. They had a lot more cholesterol. They had a lot more fat. Their cholesterol levels went up to, on average, about 220. And their heart disease rate fell by 40%. <laughs> and at the same time, their rate of stroke fell by sevenfold. Sevenfold. There is no causative relationship to be demonstrated here. Well, and you, you can it, demonstrate it if you, if you choose very you, carefully one or two populations and that's and exactly what ansel keys did isn't it yeah i mean he, why yeah. didn't he study france the french right. the french have the highest saturated fat intake in europe and they have the lowest rate of cardiovascular disease in europe the the seven nations study was an amazing document wasn't it, it that, well yeah it was almost like it, it was so oh, it's almost like it, I'm just going to completely make up. I'm just going to choose out of my 22 countries that, that don't fit the hypothesis. I'm going to find seven that do. Well, I mean, that's just the, 
the antithesis of science, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's just the opposite of. I mean, I, and people still believe this nonsense. It's just absolutely amazing to me that you here we are, forty years into this idiocy about dietary cholesterol and heart disease. Well, it's 70 years, actually, to tell the truth. Yeah, but it's, you know, we've had, it's been on TV nonstop for about 40. And it's, uh, uh, we've just been inundated with this absolute demonstrable nonsense. Yes. And everybody still believes it. And, I know. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's just, uh, it's an amazing thing that a benign substance like dietary fat has gotten the reputation as a deadly poison. And when you take the dietary fat out and replace it with sugar, what happens? <laughs> well, people get fat and diabetic and die of heart disease. That's the simple solution. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly as if, as if that's just some weird coincidence, isn't it? I mean, if you understand physiology, it's almost like, you know, go and read some physiology, which I did. It's quite, it's, it's remarkably difficult to find this stuff out. It's almost like it's, they don't want you to know. Right. You know, I, 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 I remember I was at a, I was at a meeting in London where I was discussing whether the English breakfast was healthy, you know, which is like bacon and eggs and sausages and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and the counter argument person was was a was a professor of nutrition somewhere I can't remember where. And I said, well, if you eat carbohydrate, if you eat too many carbohydrates, the liver turns them into fat um, because it can't do anything else with them. Right. And then it sends the car- these fats out as very low density lipoproteins into the bloodstream. And uh, and and that's what happens. And he, he went, well, how do you know that? I'm like, well, I read it. How do you not know that? <laughs> How do you not know that? How do you not know that? No, it's like you're a professor of nutrition. And you and don't you know this don't simple know this. path, this metabolic pathway. This, this is metabolic pathway that is, you know, is, is irrefutably known to be a fact, you know, and, 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 and so you're arguing against people who are professors of this. They don't even they don't even know their own their own area. Right. And it was like shocked that I, I mean, I'm just a, a mere little general practitioner, and I was explaining to him, you know, de novo lipogenesis in the liver, and he's looking at me as if I'm talking, uh, whatever. Yeah, I, like, you know, I, I've had conversations. Look, I'm I'm a geologist. <laughs> I'm a strength coach and a geologist, and I know more about this than these people do. Well, and it's yeah. I mean, the average doctor knows nothing about any of these things. I mean, I, I, I've spoken, to, I've given talks and blah, blah, blah to doctors. And, and um, I remember talking about lipids and VLDL and LDL and microns and blah, blah, blah to an audience. And, and it was like a little five-minute presentation. At the end of which, this guy said, I learned more about lipids and fats and cholesterol in five minutes from you than I've ever learned ever before in my medical degree or being a doctor. <laughs> well, just, it's not discussed, is it? No, it's not. Dis- it's like it isn't discussed, and yet, and yet doctors have absolute certainty that they know what they're talking about in this area. Oh, 
that's and, that's and one of the features of doctors. <laughs> <laughs> one of the most important features of the medical profession is that they are absolutely certain whether they are right or not. <laughs> well, uh, sadly, I find I can't really disagree with you. Right. And it is this sort of, um, it's remarkable how little they are interested in. Of course, you learn about a lot of stuff doing medicine. But, but once it's sort of finding out for your own interest or, or, or let's have a look at this or anything, it just is like almost, you know, that's, that's not my job. I'm not going to, I don't, right. you know, I asked them, this is apropos of nothing, but you know, not apropos of nothing, but the doctoring data. Probably one of the most important things that you have to know when you're looking at clinical studies, and that would be status, is what's the difference between a relative risk and an absolute risk? Now, most people have no idea what I'm talking about here, but it's a really fundamental issue with understanding a clinical study. Right. And I've asked 50 fellow doctors I'm just, you know, having a cup of coffee after a meeting or whatever, just as a kind of say, I'm just doing a little survey on this. And, and I just uh, be like, like you to tell me and explain to me the difference between absolute and relative risk. And I just tell you is none of them knew. None of them even <laughs> really heard of such a thing. This is, I'm thinking, this is a fundamental statistical value that you have to understand or everything comes out of your mouth is gibberish. Well, precisely, and, and yet, um, and yet they're confident and 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 start telling me, "Oh, the statins are wonderful," and I've seen this, I've seen this study, and what about these studies? But if you actually nail them down and say, "Well, which of the studies is it that most convinced you?" and what was the data that you saw that most convinced you? None of them will ever be able to give you a single name of a single study or any of the data that no, they've seen. Just, it's just, just like. Um, you don't know anything about this area, and yet you're telling me you don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Furthermore, you don't know anything about this area that you haven't learned from a drug rep. Well, uh, well, I mean that is a problem, isn't it? Or or guidelines created by opinion leaders who are in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry, right? right. Who provide these guidelines? I mean, the, the the last time I looked at the National Cholesterol Education Panel. Yes, for God's sake, there is such a thing. <laughs> there were nine members of the panel and 128 conflicts of interest between them all with companies that made far, uh, cholesterol-lowering agents. And those are just but, the ones that were disclosed. Well, I think they did disclose, whether they disclosed them all or not, but it was almost like, well, it was every, con every company that made a statute. These people who were creating these guidelines had strong financial associations right. strong financial associations some of them were board members of pharmaceutical companies <laughs> and these were the people that are writing the guidelines it's like hello wake up it, world it's just uh, it's just astonishing it really is just astonishing uh, so let's get to the nuts and bolts here what relationship does cholesterol have to heart disease well, I'll give you a round figure. It is zero. That's it. None that is whatsoever. the entire and totality of the relationship between cholesterol or LDL and cardiovascular disease. There is no relationship. There never has been one. There never will be one. There can't be one. There is no biologically plausible mechanism by which cholesterol, LDL, whatever you want to call it, 
can cause cardiovascular disease, it is not physiologically possible for it to do so. What about people with extremely high serum cholesterols, five, six hundred milligram per deciliter levels? Now, what, what is that situation? That situation is, and I've written a paper about this, which um, I can't remember the title of currently. Um, basically, we looked at um, people You and with, I have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a, a look at people with familial hypercholesterolemia, yeah. which is what you're talking about. And they have genetically, they have a lack of LDL receptors. Usually, it's a bit more complicated than that. Therefore, the LDL stays in their bloodstream and isn't taken out of their bloodstream. So the level can be extremely high. It can be five or six times as high. In the most extreme examples where it's homozygous, it can be 30 times as high. And that's a completely different condition, if you like. Now, it's, it's long been stated that people with familiar hypercholesterolemia are at far greater risk of dying of cardiovascular disease. And, that, and this is used as a very strong argument that, well, okay, explain that then, you know. Right. Well, um, to which the answer is quite, is, is actually, I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. Let me take you back in time to another study. This is, I'm not, I'm not avoiding this question. I'm just going to give you a little more context. In general, when someone dies of cardiovascular disease, young, and they find they've got familiar hypercholesterolemia, they then look at their family and say, these people are more likely to have familiar hypercholesterolemia. They have more heart disease. Now, it could be it's the familiar hypercholesterolemia that is the thing causing higher rates of heart disease in these families, or it could be there's something else that is not associated with the cholesterol, which is an associated genetic thing going on. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So what they did a study in, in, in the Netherlands in order to get rid of this bias that the people you look at are people who are known relatives of people who are known to have heart disease, who are known to have high cholesterol levels. So instead of which, they went and asked students, which of you have parents who died young of heart disease? All right. So to find out the other way around. So they're, they're finding people who have not got heart disease and then saying, have you got a relative with heart disease? So you're not starting with someone with heart disease and then finding all their relatives. And what they found was that the, 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 the rate of familiar hypercholesterolemia in these, these young students who had parents who had premature heart disease, the rate of familiar hypercholesterolemia was exactly the same as the surrounding population. In other words, there was no association between familiar hypercholesterolemia and risk of heart disease in an unscreened and unknown population before you'd started doing the study. Now, this study was done hmm. um, by a guy in, in, in uh, Glasgow originally. He published it as a, I only know this study existed because I was writing something about cholesterol and I noticed this, this letter response in a British medical journal where this guy talked about this study and said, well, we actually found there was no correlation between familiar hypercholesterolemia and premature heart disease in this study. And it was never published and it sank without trace. And I contacted the European Society of Cardiology and said, why did you never publish this study? And no one ever responded to me. <laughs> and it just went, it just went away. So whenever, when, when people tried to look at it the right way round, they found no correlation 
between premature heart disease and familial hypercholesterolemia beyond the background rate. So familial hypercholesterolemia essentially is not a malignant situation. Not with these people, no. It is, uh, there is, however, now here's here where it becomes complicated is the LDL is the receptor that takes LDL out of the bloodstream. LDL is also does does not just do one thing as there's nothing in the body that just does one thing. Right. LDL receptors also remove coagulation factors like factor eight from the bloodstream. So if you have less LDL in some people, in in certain genetic variants, you will be hypercoagulable. And this has been shown, right? Now, that is a fascinating thing that's been left out of this conversation by the mainstream discussion, isn't it? Well, it's not anywhere in the mainstream discussions. But we looked at it, and we found that essentially there's a small subset of people who die. And also, they've done twin studies on this as well, where they found that you can find that the, 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 the familiar hypercholesterolemic twin can be at risk of heart disease or not at risk of heart disease. And their twin, whether or not they've got a raised cholesterol level, will have the same rate of heart disease as their twin. So there's another factor in the background here. And that other factor is, when you look at it, is always coagulation, increased blood coagulation factors, such as factor eight, which you'll have heard of, which is the one that's low in hemophilia. So in fact, the, the small proportion of people who die very young when they've got familiar hypercholesterolemia these people will have the clotting factor problems. The rest of the population does not die prematurely. And in fact, the average lifespan of someone with familiar hypercholesterolemia is identical to the average lifespan of people who do not have familiar hypercholesterolemia. (laughs) And once you reach the age of 60, if you've got familiar hypercholesterolemia, you are less likely to die from heart disease than the surrounding population. Well, now that is just damned interesting. (laughs) Okay. So it's like you have this fact that everyone comes out with. Familiar hypercholesterolemia, look at all these these young people dying of heart disease. You go, stop. But you're saying there's like a 500% increase in heart disease in people under the age of 40. True. All right. How many people die of heart disease under the age of 40? Well, the answer is very, very Very few. few. So if you get... A, in a population of 5,000 familiar hypercholesterolemics, 10 of them dying before the age of 40, that will be 500% higher than the two people out of 5,000 that die in the normal population. That's your small group of people who've got the blood clotting factor problems universally. And uh, and that's the answer to the to the to that question. I mean, there's several answers to that question, but that's the the answer answer to that question. Does that make sense? Have I been clear on that? Because it does get a bit, people get confused when I talk about this sometimes. <laughs> no, I think that's clear. Okay. I think that's clear. Good. This is so, a, so this it, is a complicated it, 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 situation. You have to understand that out of 5,000 people, 10 is a very small number. Two is also a very small number. But two is one-fifth of 10. Yes. And we can do all kinds of things with that if we decide to, can't we? Yes. And and that's what's been done. And, well, that's what's uh, been done. This is, this is the absolute versus relative risk. Right. It, it, they've just taken a very small absolute risk 
which is which is I, I'm just making that figure up by the way. So it's one in five hundred versus right. one in one in two thousand or whatever it is. And um and, and the difference there is, is one in fifteen hundred, but it, in absolute terms. But in relative terms, it's five hundred percent. And that sounds a lot, but it's only a lot if you understand the risk. It's like saying right. if you walk if you walk in in the in Arizona, you're five times more likely to die being struck by lightning, you know, rather than walking in Maine or something. I don't know if that figure's true. What are your chances of being struck by lightning? Well, bugger up, you know. So <laughs> you've increased your risk from from very much bugger all to slightly more bugger all, but that could be a three or four hundred percent increase in risk. Right. And that's where they. But the that's absolute risk is is not discussed. The relative risk of what we're talking about, the and that's just risk not. Is, it, it's just not relevant. Yeah. I mean, if, if 500 out of 5,000 people died prematurely from heart disease with familiar hypercholesterolemia, yeah, you'd, you'd have that's a real a, thing on your That's a concern. But you've got a really, really small proportion. And that small proportion has been blown up to mean the greatest issue in the, huge, in the whole of mankind. You know, uh, I mean, you can look at other conditions. There's another condition called Hughes disease. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, antiphospholipid syndrome. Antiphospholipid syndrome. Don't worry about it. it. Sounds horribly complicated. Affects about a one in a hundred people, so it's more common than familiar hypercholesterolemia. Mm-hmm. And boy, does that cause premature strokes and heart disease. And Hughes disease. Well, phospholipid is just a term for lipid with a phospho- phosphate molecule stuck to it. That happens to make up all of your cell membranes in your body. So your cell membranes are two layers of phospholipids stuck back to back. Mm-hmm. and form a, a little circle. That's a cell membrane. And, and obviously your endothelial cells are made of a phospholipids. They're membranes. Of, so if you've got antiphospholipid syndrome, means your body has decided to attack phospholipids. The immune system says, don't like this, and I'm going for it, which you would think would cause instant death instantaneously, but it doesn't. But So it basically means that your endothelial cells are being attacked on a re- regular basis, mm-hmm. and, and it causes blood clotting and strokes and all sorts of nasty things at a young age. And 50%, although it affects one, I thought it affects 1% of people, 50% of people who have strokes under the age of 50 have got antiphospholipid syndrome. And yet we don't screen for it and we don't treat it right. and the treatment's very easy. Um, so it's a huge burden. And um, and and yet, yet we have this really quite, serious condition which we can actually treat antiphospholipid syndrome and we have familiar hypercholesterolemia and we have clinic screening for familiar hypercholesterolemia we have vast effort put into it and then people are put on statins and you know there's never been a single randomized controlled trial using statins in familiar hypercholesterolemia it's never been done and yet we're told it saves lives you say well let's have a look at the randomized controlled trial we all want to do one of them you know, we we we've talked about this on on this this podcast many many times. Um, the things that get treated by the pharmaceutical industry are. often hard to understand the the decision making process for for why we decide to treat 
certain diseases and how we decide to treat certain diseases doesn't seem to to follow the type of logic that we would expect it to follow. For example, well, if well, you've it got follows a very follows a very simple logic, as you know well. Can we make shitloads of money out of doing that, this or that's not? That's right. That's, that's right. it. End of statins. Um, are an interesting class of pharmaceuticals, aren't they? Well, yeah. I mean, they, let's face it. If you're a pharmaceutical company, what do you want to do? You want to find something that you can claim as a disease, obviously, mm-hmm. otherwise you can't treat it. It has to be something you can't cure. So it's something you then have to treat forever. Because if you could lower the cholesterol with a tablet one day, went down, one tablet, the rest of your life, your cholesterol will be normal. They couldn't make much money out of that. Right. Unless they charged $100 million for each tablet, which no doubt they would consider. Which no one can pay. So we have the conditions in cardiovascular disease that are treated as diseases are. A raised blood pressure. Um, and I think the last time I looked, 50% of American adults are now considered to have a raised blood pressure, which is just bonkers. <laughs> That's just um, a raised cholesterol level, and I think we're at 60% of people are considered to have a raised cholesterol level now, and, and a raised blood sugar level. Now, I do consider raised blood sugar levels to be a problem, but I don't think that forcing them down with medications is anywhere near any sort of solution you want to be looking at. So we have these, essentially, we've got these three things. And, and I was looking at this today because I was writing something else. The total worldwide market for these three medications, these three drugs, is 100 well, not quite yet, but it will be in three years, according to the market forecast. $100 billion a year. $100 billion a year, which just happens For to be three, very nearly three the gross drugs. national product of Ukraine. <laughs> oh, it's just amazing. It's just absolutely amazing how little sense this makes. Well... You know, it, 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 it is like some kind of dystopian novel, isn't it? Let's yes, find yes. three things that are that you have to treat forever. That aren't really a couple of cases are not really diseases at all. Well, all of them are not really diseases in a way. And, and then and then you have to treat them for the rest of your life. And they'll make other treatments will make you feel really shit. And and you'll never get off them because you'll never be treated or cured. And that's that. And, just, and we'll forget about everything else. It's just, it absolutely, it's just, if you think about it in these terms, if you let them put you on a statin, because, I mean, I have talked to people who have shown up at the doctor with, um, uh, for a normal checkup, and whose blood pressure was 145 over over 87 and who left the doctor's office with a statin prescription <laughs> on one reading in the office by the nurse with a cuff that was too small yeah it's this well, is blood pressure. No, there is <laughs> no science being conducted here. I mean, this well, entire it, it, this entire adventure is an exercise in commerce 
and it's yep. it's got nothing whatsoever to do with biology. This is this is absolutely amazing. Uh, well, no. Now, uh, I I have the benefit of a of a congenitally rather low serum cholesterol. I've been checked, you know, repeatedly, and I'm very seldom over 200 total cholesterol. Very seldom over 200. Now, my HDL is kind of low, but my total yeah. cholesterol is, is I think, I've, the highest I've ever had it read was 209. But in reality, someone with a higher HDL than I with a total cholesterol of 245 would leave the office with a statin prescription. Yes. Every single time. <laughs> it's just bizarre how little understanding the people that we have placed in charge of our health have of this whole heart disease situation. It's, uh, I mean, if I was, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, people sometimes say to me, why don't you get angrier? I said, well, well, do you think it'll help? What's will, the point? Will it help if I get really angry? Yeah. Uh, or, or, or not. I mean, I, I tend to sort of treat it almost as it, as it, sometimes I just think it's just a joke because it's so utterly ridiculous. It's so absurd. It's just so absurd. It's so monumentally bunker well it's not bonkers i mean if you understand why it's happening you know it, it's uh, you know what would a study a cord study two cord studies one of which was in diabetes to try and lower people's blood pressure as much as possible with like every drug you could think of and and then and then hit them with a brick or whatever you did and they found that the impact of lowering the blood pressure as much as they possibly could was was precisely zero on on the outcomes cardiovascular disease i mean there was all sorts of problems with potassium and other things going wrong because boy when you stick that many drugs in people it's not a good thing mm -hmm. um and then they said it was safe it was like safe have you looked at the potassium levels anyway um and then they, they another part of the accord study was to try and get people's blood sugar levels with down as much as possible you know beat them down with insulin and glycosides and god knows whatever and get it as low as possible and uh, and the, the end result of that study was that the mortality rate increased in people who had the intensive blood sugar lowering regimes. Mm -hmm. So it killed more people. They killed people in this study. And Trying to save them, they killed them. So, you know, there's another there's a counter argument is even if a thing is high, so say even if your blood sugar is high or your blood pressure is high, and there is an association between high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. Now, whether it's causal or not, you know, is up for grabs. But even if it was, there's always downsides to, to giving people medications. You know, my, my, my mother, and I've just been dealing with this recently, she's 94, was on a blood pressure lowering medication and no one had been checking her blood pressure. I went down and went to the GP surgeon and her blood pressure is, was 88 over 40. <laughs> she, she doesn't said, no, feel, feel really good tired, and i feel really dizzy and i've got no energy i said well, bloody surprise you haven't got any blood reaching your brain at the moment right i'm surprised they can get past your neck and no you know it's, she was on it she's 94 I me mean, for god's sake you know uh it's just 
Uh, what's the? Are you just trying to make the woman as miserable as possible for the rest yeah, of her well, life? Yeah. Is that is that well, what you're trying to do? Do you not understand that an artificially low blood pressure is a very, very, very bad thing? It's just as bad in terms of quality of life. In fact, it's probably worse in terms of quality of life than an elevated blood pressure. Because with well, an elevated elevate blood pressure, you can still function. Well, an elevated blood pressure used to be called the silent killer because there was no symptoms whatsoever. <laughs> Whereas if you knock someone's blood pressure down, you can cause all sorts of – you get elderly people. I mean, I've seen study after study where if you reduce the blood pressure – well, I can't remember the age exactly. You increase the risk of falls because postural hypertension. Sure. An elderly person falls, they break their hip, they end up in hospital, they never get They're dead. they die. They're dead. Elderly They're dead. person falls, breaks a hip. They're dead. Six well, months. Them, the average life something like ninety percent of them are dead in six months with a fractured pelvis like that, from yeah. a fall. And it, and so we're. It's almost like well, we don't care if they die of a fall. At least they haven't died of a heart attack. It's like right, right. Uh, you know. Um, yeah. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a GP, and as GPs, you're supposed to say treat the patient as a whole thing. You know, look at the whole totality of the mm -hmm. of what you're trying to achieve. But in the UK, like in America, uh, and possibly w worse in the UK, because we introduced a thing called Quality Outcome Framework, which I fought against when it was coming in. I was part of committees at that time, um, saying this is just going to result in multi, multi sort of medication. And, and we're going to cause more harm than good. And everyone was like, oh, because they introduced a system of paying general practitioners for for achieving targets like have you measured their cholesterol have you measured their blood pressure have you done this have you lowered their blood pressure have you lowered their cholesterol so so everyone was coming in getting all these things measured and gps were getting targets for putting people on medication after medication after medication i mean again you know we were when i was at medical school many centuries ago we were told try and ensure that no patients ever on more than five medications at a time because the adverse effects and the interactions will cause more problems than they can solve. Of course. But the, the teaching nowadays seems to be make sure all your patients are on more than five medications simultaneously. My it's like, God. no, you, you just what you have no study evidence for multi sort of medication, polypharmacy as they call it. Polypharmacy. No, no evidence for this. And, and they did a study in, in Israel, which is the only time I've seen this study done because no one else would deal with it was they got people in nursing homes who, and they tried to stop as many medications as they possibly could get away with and 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 it reduced it reduced the the mortality rate over the next year by over 50 percent in these people. Oh, <laughs> what else do you need to know you know i've we've got a <laughs> old guy in my band uh had a medical issue a while back he was on 11 prescription drugs 11 prescription drugs had a uh, had a mild stroke didn't appear to cause any permanent damage and uh, now he's on 12 <laughs> and uh, you know course it's none of my business but uh i mean th this is uh 
we we have such a screwed up medical system every layer of it is screwed up i mean you you you've got it is not a science there's nothing sciencey about any of this there's absolutely nope. nothing science it is it's based on a commercial model and it is it is dressed up as science but there's not any there's not any actual science taking place here there is commerce no. taking place now there's nothing wrong with commerce unless it displaces logic which it has done and uh I, you know, I i just do not this this you know this whole uh statin drug uh blood pressure situation is a the whole problem in a my in microcosm here you've got some, you've got a hypothesis that made absolutely no sense that has been pursued to far beyond its logical conclusion. And now we've got, uh, as far as I know, the last time I looked at this, statins were the number one filled prescription in pharmacies in the United States. And I'm sure it's true in the UK as well. Oh, absolutely true it's, in the UK. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's even true in France. And France has got an incredibly low rate of heart disease. Right. I mean, it is... Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, to an extent, yeah. I, I know why, uh, with writing the book, the, the, the clock thickens, was mostly about, in a way, saying... If I attack the cholesterol hypothesis, it seems to make it grow stronger. You know? Like a 1950s B movie, The Blob. Don't attack right. it, it grows stronger. You know? Right. Um, just ignore it and maybe it'll go away. I was trying to say is not talk about cholesterol too much. It said, look, just forget cholesterol. Just wipe your mind clear of cholesterol right. and, and pretend it didn't exist. And let's start again. And let's look at what actually causes heart disease because now you've got at least somewhere else for your thinking to go right. let's look at it as a different way and a model that appears as as far as i can see it's not i didn't create the, the clotting hypothesis the thrombogenic hypothesis that was first created in 1852 so i can hardly claim it's a new idea uh, or my idea really uh, i'd like to um so but it, it it's just almost like is, is this why it still exists because you know in the uk we have well we did have the queen and one of the things the Queen recognized was that if people attack you, just don't say anything. And then they get fed up and go away. <laughs> and so just being silent and looking. They're trying to get a problem. rise out of you. And if, trying to get if, a rise out of me? No. And, and if, no if they don't. Uh, and so it's like the cholesterol. I had it kind of reverse. Well, if I ignored the cholesterol hypothesis, maybe it would just go away. Um, but, of course, I'm just one very very small well there's just too damn much money involved in it at this point they've got um i mean nothing could be further from the truth it really if if you show up at your doctor and you have a serum cholesterol of 221 total cholesterol of 221 and it doesn't matter what your hdl is you you're probably going to leave there with a statin prescription 
Yes. At 221. And this is nothing. And and they keep lowering the top threshold level for cholesterol to to treat with uh, with Lipitor. They they keep lowering it and lowering it. And I believe at this point it's like 205 over here. I've I've lost track, but I do know that when I first graduated, a raised cholesterol level was seen as about above 350. Right. Oh, no, that's that you're you're a walking dead man at at this point. You're a dead man walking at that level, right? You're just walking around and you just haven't yet died, but it's coming here in a minute. And and now it's 205 or something like that. And I'm telling you, this is nothing but a transparent sales technique. Well, it is, is, of course. I mean, I've spoken to people. There's a uh, gentleman in the States who's 72 now. He started communicating with me and said, said, I've got an LDL level, all right, of 500. (laughs) And... um, uh, they've tried me on all these statins and other things, and I've, I've, I've had reactions to them. But I've been studied for 25 years, I think. People have, you know, I'm a super high, super, super high level. And I have no detectable heart disease or atherosclerosis. My arteries are as clean as a whistle. Right? And uh, uh, that pisses them off. Right, well, of course, it pisses them off. Uh, he's not the only one, by the way. I, I get plenty of people who've got LDLs and cholesterols that through the roof. So you have to say is, um, according to science, all right, if if this is a, a you know, the higher it is, the worse it is, all right, and someone's at five times the normal level and has no discernible heart disease, does that not make you think, you know what, maybe it doesn't cause heart disease? Maybe, maybe there's no relationship here. Maybe there's no relationship. But instead of which, all they say to him is, you're obviously protected by something. You know, yeah, but what? Well, we don't know what it is, but there must be something. What, you know, but, but it never occurs to them to say, well, maybe you're not threatened by this. Yes. They, the, the threat has been established. See? Yes. So you're, you're obviously being protected by something. Yeah. Hey, you don't maybe what well, you I think I'm being protected to... from yeah. is not threatening me. Yes, exactly. That's the that's the, that's the obvious solution. Yes. So you find one person with a raised LDL who dies of heart disease, and you go, oh, it was the LDL that did it. You find another person with an equally raised LDL that has got no detectable heart disease, to go, oh, you're protected by something. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the, because they can't let it go. They can't let it go because they have statins well, to sell. I know. Well, I looked at a study in America with something like 180 hospitals and 270,000 people admitted with with heart attacks. And um, I'm not going through all the figures, but the average level of LDL in this population that was admitted was lower than the average population for, than for the average population in the United States. But I did notice there were some people with LDL levels uh, of, of 20, 30. I've never seen anyone with a level that low, by the way. And these people were still coming in with heart attacks, right? So you can yeah, yeah, there weren't many, many, many of them, but but hardly anyone's got a level of that, you know. So right. anyway, um, and I was thinking, well, doesn't the fact that people can arrive with an LDL of twenty and still have a heart attack make you think? So how's it causing a heart attack when yeah. it is a fifth or a tenth of the normal level? 
What's happening here? What's They cannot. They've built a a a house out of this being a factor, and if it's not a factor, then they don't have anywhere to live. And and that is just how many times throughout history do we do we have to see this? You know. People get vested in an idea that's patently false. They have it proven to them that it's patently false. And by God, we're going to do it anyway. Well, you know, with this guy with his with this guy with his LDL of five hundred, is um, is uh, you know, told you, well, you really need to be on a statin. He said, I'm seventy two. I don't have any detectable heart disease. Yeah, but you still need to be on the statin. Why do you need to be on the statin? Well, because your LDL is 500. No, you're not. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make logical sense. If I'm on a statin to treat a disease process, what is the disease process? Well, this number is the disease process. But nothing is wrong with me except your arbitrary number yeah what is more plausible that you don't understand your number or that i'm actually sick (laughs) you know it's Uh, (laughs) but you uh, you can't it's just amazing how (laughs) it's, it's the weirdest ass situation we have found ourselves in and this permeates medicine so you know you know it permeates medicine it you know, you don't see these kinds of problems in engineering. You don't see no. these kinds of problems in, in structural engineering or electronic engineering or any other type of engineering field because the math is rather concrete in these kinds of situations. But because we're dealing here with a multivariate system, to, to put it mildly, a multivariate system. You have people that can build a camp around one little bullshit idea and maintain that camp for decades. Well, they have done. Well, we've seen it. This is the reality. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it is fascinating because, of course, causality in medicine is is complicated. And disproving things is more complicated. Yes, because of the number of variables, some of which you don't even know are there. Yes, well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you don't. If you don't know that, say, lead can cause lead can cause heart disease, and someone's got heart disease, and you don't know why. Well, you know, where do you go? Well, I could say, let's look for it, or let's look for something else, or let's look for the one of the myriad things that can cause heart disease that have nothing to do with all these standard factors that you've got so we're but we're stuck you know i mean if you went to the doctor 50 years ago to 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 look at cardiovascular disease risk it it would be almost exact apart from the numbers have come down a bit be almost exactly the same things as now nothing has moved it's 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 been solidified and fixed I mean, I asked doctors about the glycocalyx, which is this hugely, hugely, hugely important thing. None of them have ever heard of it. They don't even know it exists. I think it's a bit like, how can you even talk about heart disease if you don't even know 
there's such a thing as a glycocalyx. How, how can you? They're not even learning. They're not learning this it's, in medical school. It's I know just they're fundamental not. physiology, and you're un, you're unfamiliar with this fundamental physiology. Yet you're practicing medicine yeah. that purports to deal with this fundamental physiology, yeah. and yeah. it's it's just bizarre to me that um, there remains uh, a tiny bit of trust in these people. It's bizarre to me that you just walk into the doctor's office. He says, oh, your cholesterol is hey, it's 215. Well, we've got to treat this with a drug that is going to make you feel like shit. And you say, well, okay. I mean, after all, he is a doctor, you know. <laughs> so it's an amazing power, isn't it? And it of is. course, I, I, get, I, I run it. I run into it the opposite way around. It's almost like, what do you know about it? You know. So, well. Yeah, you're just a GP, after all. Yeah. I, I'll tell you now, it may sound arrogant, but uh, I've forgotten more about cardiovascular disease than your GP ever learned. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I've studied it. And I, anyway, you know, then that just sounds arrogant. You say, oh, you think you know better. It's like. Well, what what they generally the only, say, well, then why aren't you a heart surgeon? You're just a GP. You're only a GP. Yeah. You know. You're only, you know, I can read, though. I, I, no, it is. Yeah. I mean, it, no, it, isn't it, that fascinating? Just, I mean, I've got, uh, I have a degree. I have a bachelor's degree in geology. And uh, and I've been a strength coach for 45 years. And uh, if you look at that background, you would you would you know on, on the way doctors generally do. Well, what do I know about anything? Well, I happen to have learned some things, and you have not, <laughs> right? And oh, they don't want to hear that shit, man. They they really don't want to hear that shit. I I've never met a people in a in a in a profession as uh, jealous of their um, title Terrible. doctor than than I have in the medical profession. I mean, there's just these people are not. Uh, not very good at admitting they don't know stuff. And yes, well, in part, there's a reason for that because a patient comes to you, you are kind of put in position of authority by them. Well, he's 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 paying you to tell him what to do. I understand, yeah. and so you don't you want do to say I don't know because do, that's bad yeah, for your I practice. Yeah. I do remember a well, recently a patient uh, is a mom, mother and daughter who came to me and. And she had a condition I can't even remember the name of now. I think there's five people in the UK have got it. It's some malformation in her lung with blood vessels. And she said she's got whatever it is, hyperadosinomal syndrome or whatever it was. And I said, I'm sorry, but I have no idea what that is. I don't know what it is. Um, can you tell me? Because I don't know. And um, at the end of the consultation, we discussed it. There's nothing to do with that condition, probably, that she came in with in there. And she said, you know, you're the only doctor that has ever, ever said that you don't know what it is. But it was obvious to me that none of the other doctors had any idea what it was, but they didn't admit it. And I said, 
Well, um, there's yeah. not much point in you saying I know I know what it is if I don't know what it is because that's just stupid. And um, well, it is stupid, it, but it is it is common. Uh, it's very 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 common. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of famous GPs here in Wichita Falls that run their practice um, with uh, a standard 45 seconds of exposure to a patient. Yeah. They come in the room, 45 seconds goes by, and the nurse knocks on the door. And the whole thing's over. And it, it, it is, you know, this guy's making a living. <laughs> and a pretty damn good one. Well, he must be very good. Well, he's, he can do that. He he, do the whole he's thing very good at something. <laughs> I don't, don't know yeah, what it I, is, but. Oh, God. Well, well I've, got to, I've got to thank you for uh, for interviewing me again, Mark. But um, I've really enjoyed it. Well, uh, I appreciate your time, Malcolm. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is the author of these three books on the on the desk. I highly suggest that uh, you guys get up to speed here. Um, you can tell from our conversation here that uh, uh, Dr. Kendrick is worth listening to so i would i would get these and read them you'll be far far better off next time you go see your own doctor uh, if you are equipped with a little bit more information malcolm thank you again we'll do it again next time i think of something interesting to talk about all right <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining much. us and thank you guys for being with us today on starting strength radio